This morning we are starting a new series on the fruit of the Spirit. There's many different lists in scriptures, uh, Scripture where you can identify the fruit of the Spirit. One of the most prominent coming here in Galatians chapter 5 that talks about how God works and changes our lives. We're entering into this series this, over the course of this spring for a couple of reasons. One of those is a desire that I had um, for us as a church to really have a deeper understanding and also experience of what happens when Christ changes a person's life. Other thing that's going along with that is that in the midst of um, my current studies, um, I'm doing a research project on various communication theory, and I decided to do that on the fruit of the Spirit, because that's what I wanted to do with us as a church, and so also, so hopefully you as a congregation will be benefiting from some of those other labors. Turn our attention here to Galatians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let's pray for God's blessing on His Word. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would send Your Spirit. That Your Spirit would descend upon us and reveal the truth of Scripture. Would apply it to our lives that there'd be a special outpouring of your spirit through your proclaimed word, that we would know you and encounter you. For Lord, apart from your spirit, we cannot understand your word, though we can comprehend the words on the page. Apart from your spirit, our hearts cannot change. Apart from your spirit, we can do none of these things. So Father, send your spirit that we might know you and grow in love for you and worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and a few others. It's a good list of, of virtues, is it not? I mean, those are things that we all desire to have present in our life and to have present in increasing measures. But quite frankly, it's not a uniquely Christian list when you look at it. I mean, thousands of years ago, there was Aristotle who had his list of cardinal virtues. Not just then, but more recently in American history, there was Ben Franklin, and Ben Franklin, you know, famously had his 13 character traits that he thought thought were essential, and he had a uh, a rigorous system of where he would list these out in his journal each week, and every week he would evaluate himself over the course of his week, how he did in each one of those character areas, and then he would make plans for the following week to improve on the areas that he was weak on the, 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 in the preceding week. 
It's not just uh, Ben Franklin, but certainly in many of our careers and many of our professions, there's a list of values that our profession has, a list of character traits. You know, famously, John Paul Jones and his qualifications for a naval officer lists out what exactly a naval officer should be and what they should aspire to be as core qualifications. And the United States Marine Corps has their own version of this. As they list out, what does it mean to be a good Marine? What are the Marines, what are they trying to generate and produce? They're Marines who are committed to justice and judgment, dependability, integrity, decisiveness, tact, initiative, endurance, bearing, unselfishness, courage, knowledge, loyalty, and enthusiasm. And the world would be a whole lot better place if these traits were embodied in many different people. And so when we come to the fruit of the Spirit, the list that we are looking at in Scripture, it's not a whole lot different from a variety of other lists that are present in our world. Not not a whole lot different from what many people are striving for in their careers and their professions and through a variety of different disciplines. But what do we mean that this is the fruit of the Spirit? Tim Keller reminds us that it is very possible to have a morally virtuous life without a supernaturally changed heart. It's possible to have a morally restrained heart without having a supernaturally changed heart. And I think for many of us, at least it's been true in my own life, that when I consider what a Christian should be, the experience of Christians, the, the, the fruit of the Spirit, the different descriptions of what a Christian life should be like, At times it feels like it is something that I can see in other people's lives. I hear other people talk about it. It is something that I very much want to have, but for some reason it seems that it is something that I cannot myself grasp or doesn't seem to be true in my own life. When I was a kid, we took a trip to Denver, Colorado and went to Pikes Peak. My dad and I drove to the top of Pikes Peak. It was great. I loved it. And one of the things that I was so excited about on the day that we were going to Pikes Peak was there was this massive cloud across the top of the mountain. And I was so excited about this because I finally could touch a cloud. I think I was in fifth grade at the time. I used to look at the clouds in the sky and how, how puffy and how billowy they are. You know, and I would lay in my backyard and I'd look up at the sky and imagine the different shapes that the clouds clouds would make and think of different characters that they would come together. And I was just always thought about, what would it be like to touch one? Would it be like a a marshmallow? Would it be like a cotton ball? What would it be like to feel the billows of this cloud? And so excitedly, we drove up to the top of the mountain. And we were in the middle of this cloud, can barely see in any different direction. And I get out of the car in order to touch the cloud. And what happens? I reach out, and it's substance I cannot grasp. There's mist around me, but that's not really unique or special. And though I am in the midst of it, it is something that I cannot really feel, I can't really lay hold of, and I can't really grasp. And I feel at times that that's what it feels like the Christian life is like. That there are these things in your life that are like, oh, this is what a Christian looks like. This is how a Christian acts. These are the fruit of the Spirit. But it seems that the very thing that I most want, it's substance. I can't grasp. And so here, as we enter into the series here, we're looking at a series on the fruit of the Spirit, which identifies character traits that I would 
venture to say that it's something that all of us want. But something that we are utterly powerless to attain or produce within ourselves. And yet at the same time, my hope and prayer through this is that the Holy Spirit will produce these things in our lives. To produce the fruit of the Spirit. Over the next several weeks, we're going to go through each one of these over the course of the spring. But as we go through them in order, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, so on and so forth, it's important for us to remember that Scripture describes these as the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits of the Spirit. That this is not, and we're not giving you a checklist to work through here, but rather the fruit of the Spirit, as one scholar said, is the unified blossoming, the unified blossoming of a heart that has been liberated by the gospel of grace. All of these things become apparent. All of these things get produced. So what's the difference? What is the difference between the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of human effort that so many of our employers and workplaces espouse? As we dive into this passage here, we're going to look at the problem that's endemic to each one of us, the struggle that occurs within each of us, and then the journey that the Holy Spirit takes us on, beginning to look at the problem. Here's what Scripture describes. Paul says, But I say, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In the New Testament, this is the prototypical term for what is wrong with us, the desires of the flesh. And he describes what they look like. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and in case I missed anything, things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, let me ask you, what do the works of the flesh look like in the life of a Christian versus a non-Christian? Do they look any different? Not really. Actually, not at all. And in fact, I would probably say that in the life of a Christian, they're a little bit more odious because we Christians know how to do these things with a little with a, with a Christian veneer. And so we know how to do it in a way that's a little bit more Christianly acceptable that is a complete hypocrisy to the truth of Scripture as it's laid out here. And Scripture lays out, and then, you know, these things are pretty easy to identify. They occur whenever each of us in ourselves or in another person, when we don't prioritize another person above ourselves, when we don't prioritize God above all else. And Scripture says that those who practice these things, these works, show that they have not encountered the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. But the core issue is this point of the desires of the flesh. This word here, as David Pallison points out, is the prototypical term in the New Testament for what is wrong with mankind. Sometimes it's translated as the desires of the flesh, sometimes it's translated as the lusts of the flesh, the wants of the flesh, or simply the flesh. It is the prototypical term. In the Old Testament, the term that was most commonly used to describe what was wrong with people was the term idolatry. Here in the New Testament, it is this term, desires of the flesh. And the word here is a compound word, which literally means it, it is not just simply a desire. It is not just simply the desire of the flesh. It is an over-desire. It is an inordinate desire. It is an excessive desire. It is oftentimes a good desire that has turned into an ultimate desire that 
comes to have a controlling influence. It is a desire that is not just simply, this is something that I want, this is something that I I would like, but it turns into something of, this is a need of mine. I must have this. I have to have this. In fact, if I don't have this, I'm not going to be happy. I have to have this. So how does it work out? You're playing video games with your siblings. You want a turn. They're not giving you a turn. They're taking longer. All of a sudden, you go over and you rip the video game controller out of their hand. Why? Because you want it. The desire you want to play has turned into an over-desire. Or you've just finished cleaning your house because you're having company over, and then somebody walks through with muddy shoes right through the foyer and into the kitchen of your house. And you explode in anger. Not just simply a desire, but it has turned into an over-desire. Or you want respect. You want respect from your kids. You want respect from your spouse. You want respect from your workplace. And if for some reason, you know, you come home and you feel disrespected, that turns and you have this outburst of anger. How, how dare you disrespect me? And this desire for respect turns into this over-desire that turns into anger to punish other people because you're not getting what you not just simply want, but feel that you need to have. And the one with respect, of course, we can spiritualize that. I mean, God calls people to respect people in authority. God calls you, children, to honor your father and mother. Therefore, it's not just it's not about me. This is just because about you're disobeying God right now because you're not respecting me. Why the anger? Why the anger? The reason for the anger is that that desire has turned into an over-desire. It has turned into an inordinate desire and a controlling, a controlling, overarching desire. Now, the, what Scripture identifies here is that we have this issue of the desires of the flesh as our core problem. And not only do we have these desires of the flesh, but what is very problematic is that in many of the approaches for character development and for character cultivation, what happens is that the process to cultivate character and cultivate virtue is the exact same process that cultivates and produces sin in our life. Let me explain that. Here's what happens in verse 16. It says, I say to you, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Parallel verse, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Notice the parallel structure here. Walk by the Spirit, led by the Spirit. Desires of the flesh, under the law. Paul makes the two, he equates the two together. What it means is that it is entirely possible for you to gratify the sinful nature through obedience to the law. It is very possible for you to have a moral life without a supernaturally changed heart. It is very possible, and you have experienced it many times, of incentives to produce positive virtues, positive character through the works of the law. How does that happen? Well, in Christian circles, we would say something like this. If you've got, a, if you've got a, an issue in your life, Scripture calls you to put off the old self and put on the new self. So do it. Put off the old self and put on the new self. If you're struggling with anger, the Bible says don't be angry. Memorize a Bible verse on the anger that tells you not to be angry and tells you to be peaceful. Don't be angry, be peaceful. Put off, put on. Take your pick. 
Bible calls you to, to be more loving. Okay, don't be unloving, be loving. I'm going to memorize something, I'm going to do it. Here's what, here's what, here's what I'm going to do. But the problem with that approach, first off, it has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with Jesus Christ or the Holy Spirit. There is a, there is a right usage of those verses, by the way. Of course there is. It has nothing to do with Jesus or the Holy Spirit. It sounds very scriptural because I use lots and lots of Bible verses, but fundamentally it's no different than what Ben Franklin is doing. Weekly, making his list of here are the positive virtues, here are the negative virtues, don't stop these ones, do that. It's kind of like that book. Don't eat this, eat that. Stop doing this, do that. And it comes through in many other areas of our life. Because what is underneath these and how many of these attempts work at us and these different techniques and different training programs work to bring about change in our life is they seek to bring about change by living under the law, by changing through the means of the law. And there are two principal driving, motiva- driving motivations for life under the law. And the driving motivators for life under the law are pride and fear. Stated differently, that would be rewards and punishments. Or as one life coach said, astutely identifying this, he says, pride and fear are the two greatest motivations of life. Pride and fear are the two greatest motivations of life. There is a greater one that he is unaware of, but he identifies what is so widely present in for, for so many of us. Pride and fear. What does that look like? Pride just being self-promotion and fear being self-protection. Incredibly powerful motivators. There is a lot of things that you can do and that people can generate and things that people can achieve by appealing to pride and fear. Many of you have work in places where there are character standards. If you're in the Marine Corps, you've got your 14 virtues. Other people have other standards that they have in other workplaces. And how do these work out? Well, you're encouraged to do do them principally on the basis of pride and or fear. You want to be a good Marine, so do it. You don't want to be a bad Marine. It's appealing to pride. You know, if in your job, if you're fair, if you're cheerful, if you're diligent, if you're self-controlled, if you're kind, if you care for other people, you're going to get a really good fitness report. But if you engage in the work of the flesh in your workplace, if you're bitter, if you're divisive, if you cause strife, if you cause enmity, if you commit sexual immorality at your workplace, well, you don't want to do those things because you're going to get fired or not promoted. What's the root issue? Pride and or fear. And it turns into parenting as well. Of course it does. Why? How does it turn out? We say to kids, hey, be a good girl. Don't be like that bad girl. Don't be like that type of person. You don't want to be like them. That's not who you are. What's the appeal? The appeal is, oh, this is who I am. This is how I should think of myself. This is what I should do and what I should not do. And if I, and if I do this, I'm going to get more of, I want, of what I want. And if I don't do this, bad things are going to happen. I'm going to live my life to com- cultivate these virtues out of self-promotion or out of self-protection. And quite frankly, it's really understandable. Mainly because there's not much else that you can control externally. There are other things, which we'll look at in weeks to come. And these approaches can be really, really effective in bringing in outward conformity. I mean, really effective. But as Keller would warn us, do not confuse a morally restrained heart with a supernaturally changed heart. Don't be confused that just because you see someone living a really upright, 
upright and virtuous life, or you yourself are, that that's stemming from a supernaturally changed, supernaturally changed heart. Why? Because these two things, pride and fear, are the root of all the other sins. Take a look at the negative things. Envy, dissension, sexual immorality, sensuality, the other things that were listed out, out there, divisiveness. What do all of those stem from? Pride and or fear. So what happens is that if you take a person and you stick them in a system where they are trained, trained and cultivated to have these positive virtues on the basis of pride or fear, what happens when you change the circumstances? What happens when you change the incentive structure? What happens when the situation that the person finds themselves changes? Well, the thing that has been cultivated for years and for decades, their self-protection and their self-promotion, it just needs to get manifested in a new circumstance in all these ungodly ways and all these works of the flesh. But there is an answer to the problem. There is something that happens. That if you become a Christian, there is a supernatural power that changes us. That God actually enters into your life. Last week on Easter, we, for those of you who were here, we celebrated how through faith in Jesus Christ, God sends his spirit to breathe into us, to take dry bones and to bring them to life. The Holy Spirit reverses the process of spiritual decay, starts to make us whole, starts to produce a life and life abundant in our, life, in our, in our own individual lives. How exactly that occurs, Paul makes clear in Galatians chapter 3. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. What is he explaining? That Jesus Christ, the only perfect person who ever lived, redeemed us, bought us back. How? He bought us back from the curse that is due to us, that there is a punishment due to us for breaking God's law by doing things, by acting selfishly, by doing things that we shouldn't do, by breaking God's law, and also by breaking God's law by not doing the things that we should do. And there is a punishment that is due to us. But God sent Jesus Christ to be our substitute, that Christ became a curse for us under the law so that we would be forgiven and made right before the law and so there would be an additional thing that occurs. One of them is this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law so that by becoming a curse for us so that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith, that we would receive the Holy Spirit that suddenly hearts of stone would be made hearts of flesh. Why? Because in addition to the sin nature, God puts his spirit within us. And his spirit, when you become a Christian, his spirit indwells you and renews your heart and moves you from death to life, takes you from darkness into light. The spirit gives you a new power to live for Christ. Indeed, he says in verse 25, if we live by the spirit... Why do we live by the Spirit? Because it is the Spirit that gives us life. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And this dynamic, the indwelling Spirit, explains the battle that we face on a daily basis. The problem is the desires of the flesh. Oftentimes good desires that become over-desires. But there is a battle that has begun says this, verse 17, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. That the Holy Spirit, as He indwells you, has desires. What are those desires? To make you more like Jesus Christ, to make you 
to make your, your soul more beautiful, more radiant, to be more like Christ in compassion and love and long-suffering. The Spirit yearns to make you more like Jesus, to conform you to Christ, that the areas of your life where there's been hurt, that He would bring healing, that the areas of your life where there's been decay and spiritual decay and brokenness, He would bring about revitalization and begin knitting your life together. The Spirit desires these things, that you would live for God above all else instead of living for yourself. We may say, well, if the Spirit's within me, why do I still struggle? Because they're both present. Both our sin nature and the spiritual nature are both present within us. Scripture says this, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. They are contrary to one another. They're against one another. They're opposed to each other. They are antagonistic. They are in conflict with one another to keep you from doing that which you don't want to do. Other translations say that you, so that you may not do the things that you want to do. He's identifying that if you are a Christian, there is a war within. That as long as there is sin remains in your life, there will be a war and a battle within you. There is, there is a conflict in your inner being. And we need to embrace the truth that this is the conflict. This is the basis of every other conflict, the basis of every other war and every other thing that we battle. And it is occurs within us. And our tendency is to think that the principal conflicts in my life are outside of me. The principal conflicts in my life are with the other person or the circumstances or the different job. Or the situation that I was raised in. You know, if I wasn't raised in such a difficult circumstances, then I wouldn't have this problem in my life. It was something outside of me, you see. You see, if only this other person would change, then this wouldn't really be an issue. Because the problem is outside of me. It's not really within me. And this continues, and this goes through in every different area. But the true conflict, the principal conflict in our life, is not outside of us, but it is, it is within us. Not outside, but inside, within our very being. This is the conflict that we battle. Now, what do we do with this? If that's the problem of our sin nature, and there's this battle of the Spirit working within us against our, our sinful nature, how do these things happen? What happens is that, how do these things resolve? What happens is that the Holy Spirit takes us on a journey, a journey until we see Jesus face to face. And what do we do on that journey? The calling of Scripture is what we do is we keep in step with the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Scripture says this. It says that for those who belong to Christ Jesus, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you belong to Christ Jesus, you have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. There is an execution. There has been an execution that has taken place. An actual execution has taken place. It is the execution of Jesus Christ on the cross. And if you are in Christ and have faith in Christ, you are united to Christ. And there on the cross, you are crucified with Christ. An actual execution takes place. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and with its desires. 
Now, what happens at that execution is that the sin nature has been broken. You've been set free from the motivation of sin, the passions and desires. It says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires from the very motivation of it. You've been set free from the controlling influence of sin in your life. You don't have to sin anymore. You have a choice. Not only do you have a choice, but you have the power. Because what happened with Jesus Christ on the cross, what he did on the cross, he became sin for us. He became curse for us to redeem us. That on the cross, he took the punishment that is due to you and to me, he took the punishment for us. And he paid for it himself on through his death on the cross. And he rose from the grave to bring new life. But also on the cross, not only did he take the punishment of sin, but he broke the power of sin. And the way that he broke the power of sin was that Jesus was the only person who never sinned in his life. He never had any regrets. Never said, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Never said, oh, I wish I didn't do that. Is that he's the only person who never sinned. And he was tempted to a far greater degree than you or I ever would be or ever could be tempted. Indeed, in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he is being tempted by the devil, it says he is, it was so great that drops of blood were sweating from his forehead that he was bent, but he did not break. And he was crucified as a sinner, though he himself didn't sin, and he rose from the grave. Why is that significant? Because he was bent and did not break and rose from the grave, the power of sin in your life has been broken. It is no longer a controlling influence in your life. The power is broken. And one day, when Christ returns, the very presence of sin in your life will be removed. And it'll be no more. But until that day comes, sin is still present. It still has a power. It still has desires. But it is not a controlling desire because Jesus Christ has broken those through his death and resurrection. And he has given you a new power and a new nature and a new freedom to live. Which is why he says, if we live by the Spirit, because we have life through the Holy Spirit... If we live by the Spirit, because it's the only life that we have, if this is who we are, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. What does that look like? Well, as opposed to defining it, I'm going to share with you a story that I think describes it. And this will be the focus, this aspect of what it means to keep in step with the Spirit. This we'll be focusing on for the next couple of weeks. It's a story that a a friend of ours wrote, um, a pastor couple named Andrew and Lisa. They have, uh, they're Dutch, and they have two biological children, and they have adopted um, five children themselves. Um, the five children that they adopted were African-American children. Two of them were twins. Um, two of them were high school, high school males, um, teenage males when they adopted them. And when they adopted them, the social worker said to the parents, in all of my years serving as a social worker in St. Louis, this is the first time I've ever seen a teenage African-American male ever be adopted out of the system. And they adopted um, both brothers. And she shares this reflection about her own spiritual journey related to the journey that her children have been on. 
She writes, she says, as the calendar switches over to October and windows need to be closed at night due to cool breezes, it is also time to begin that most dreaded task of changing over the kids' clothes. Hauling out bins of hand-me-downs, getting rid of clothes that are too small, and packing shorts away for sunny, warm days. My task was compounded this year by having a first go-around with the clothes of Isaiah and Malachi, the clothes that they had brought with them from their various foster homes. Malachi headed up to his room, and he began going through the big trash bags, full of clothes that he had brought with him when he had moved in. I was quite disappointed to find many things which simply would not work. I found shirts with bleach stains, holes in the fronts, food stains, and then some that were just simply worn out. Some of the shirts were too small. And I even found some that were size XXL for men for a skinny 100-pound kid. There were many pants where the hems were up past their ankles or had holes in the knees. There were huge piles of well-worn school uniforms, which are never very cute to begin with and wouldn't be needed at their new school. And some things were just plain ugly and needed to go. All this probably isn't too surprising. But what you don't see with this picture is that with every piece of clothes that I threw into the get-rid-of pile, there were moans of anguish and cries. No, Mom, not that one. I like that one. At first, I tried to rationalize each piece with him. Malachi, this shirt is even too big, big for Dad to wear. Kai, this one has a hole that your belly button will show through. Do you really want to wear this to your new school? Even my kids were watching, surprised that someone could care so much about a pile of misfits. Eventually, the duty was done, the old clothes packed up, and I sent him to carry them down the steps to the van to be taken to Goodwill and some straight to the trash. What a picture of despondency. He was dragging these big trash bags slung over his shoulders, plunk, 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 down the steps. I then went on to the other boys' rooms and eventually finished the process. At the end, Kai was lying on his bed with a sullen look on his face. I know that for kids who have had many losses in their lives, even some old clothes is valuable to them simply because it is theirs. I walked over to him, and I sat on the edge of his bed. And I told him that I understood how hard it is to part with his old clothes, but I also told, said to him, you are a member of our family now. You are no longer an orphan, and I don't want you dressed like one. You are our son, and we want you to be dressed in the same quality of clothes that all of our other children are, clothes that fit you, and clothes that make you stand out as the respectable kid that you are. You don't have to worry about clothes anymore. We're going to provide for you from now on. He nodded his head in response, but I knew it may be some time before his heart believes it. And then she shared this reflection. Though I have been clothed with Christ's righteousness, though I have been given new life in the Holy Spirit, yet I still cling to the old rags, somehow thinking that being angry or impatient or jealous or slandering works of the flesh. That somehow being angry or impatient or jealous or slandering someone, that that will make me fulfilled. I know I need to pack them into a trash bag and dump them all off, but I drag my feet on my way to prayer, not really wanting to drop them in the waste bin of repentance. I love the old ways, and I find comfort in them, for they are mine, and I have control over them, or so I think.
It is so easy for us to look at Kai and say, you're being so silly. Get rid of this junk and let your mom take you shopping or just see what she has for you. Haven't you noticed how all the other kids are dressed appropriately? Why do you want to go to school and continue to look like you don't have a home? And yet, why do I not throw my arms out to Jesus and ask him to dress me in the new clothes he promised for me? The King of Kings has come to me. He has adopted me as his child and has beautiful garments to put on me, yet I resist. He wants to drape me in his righteousness, but I lay on my bed pouting for my old, ugly clothes. If you are in Christ Jesus, you have been united to Jesus Christ. There is a crucifixion that has taken place, and the crucifixion of the desires of your flesh have been executed. And through faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit now dwells in you. And because the Holy Spirit dwells in you, the punishment that is due to you for your sins has been paid. It has been satisfied. And not only the punishment, but the power of sin over you has been broken. Yes, its presence still remains, but you are not under its control. You have been given new life and new life abundant through the presence of the indwelling Spirit of God. And you not only live because of God's Spirit, but you live by God's Spirit. What does it mean for us to keep in step with Him? It means to keep that which has been already crucified, to keep it crucified. And that the new life that we have in Christ To live as you are, as a child of God. And he calls to us. Since we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And that will be our focus for weeks to come. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, You would clothe us in righteousness, but we cling to old rags. Father, you would fill us with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, but we cling to anger and dissension, backstabbing and talking about other people. We cling to sensuality and indulgence, in part because they're our own. Yet, Father, set us free. Father, you have given us new life where the punishment of sin is removed. And more amazingly, the power of sin in our lives has been broken through your death and resurrection. Father, may we live in Christ. May we keep in step with the Spirit, not in our own efforts, but because of your indwelling Spirit working in us. And Lord, because of your Spirit working in us, Lord, we will live not out of pride, not out of fear, but will we live out of love, out of love that you have given to us. And because of the love that we have in you, will we live out of love for you, not out of self-protection, not out of self-fear, but out of a greater love that we've experienced through Christ Jesus. Father, fill us with your Spirit. Father, there are some here today who are struggling, and they're struggling because they don't know you. And so, Father, we pray that this would be the day that you grab hold of them, that you draw them to yourself, and that they would turn to you and cry out to you and say, Father, I'm tired. 
I'm exhausted. I have lived my life in fear. I have lived my life in pride. And I am done. So, Lord, make me your child. Father, would you do that this day through your spirit, we pray.